0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Sun Also Rises radio show. I'm Harley Breath, a guest host for today's program, and thank you to Mr. Jeremiah Jacques for allowing me to bring you an exciting subject on this episode. The Hubble Deep Field, 1995. In this significant moment, the Hubble telescope stared at a seemingly blank point of sky for 10 days. The point was approximately the size of a tennis ball from three football fields away. And visible within that single point of sky were 10,000 galaxies. Now this was totally unexpected at the time. And if you take those 10,000 galaxies in that single point of sky and do the math for the whole sky, the number you get is incomprehensible. The number of stars would be a 10 with 22 zeros after it. That's larger than the US debt even, by a billion times. So this huge number of stars ignited astronomers' imaginations and that of the world. The Hubble Space Telescope was the most famous and popular telescope ever. But Hubble's vision soon reached a limit. It could see only so far. And about one year later, work began on a new telescope, in a sense to become the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, ultimately it would become known as the James Webb Space Telescope. And in today's program, I want to captivate your imagination by examining how we can see beyond Hubble. Just to get the overview here, the James Webb Space Telescope is a feat of incredible magnitude. Let me talk about the massive resources that have been invested in this. There are scientists from the United States of America, Canada, and Europe collaborating to build this telescope. There's cooperation from over 258 companies, agencies, and universities, about 142 from the United States, 104 from 12 European nations, and 12 from Canada. And a cumulative 100 million man hours of work that is just so vast it's hard to understand approximately a 10 billion dollar price tag also is associated with this space telescope and work has been going on and off since about 1996 or for about 25 years total and further There have been about 10 new technologies reportedly developed to create this James Webb Space Telescope. Also, James Webb, just to mention it up front, was the second administrator of NASA, so this telescope is named after him. Now, why was the James Webb Space Telescope built? In one word, discovery. Again, Hubble could see only so far, and the main goals for the James Webb Space Telescope essentially reduced down to seeing beyond Hubble. And just to save myself some time from this point on, I'll refer to the acronym for the James Webb Space Telescope, JWST. So why is Hubble's view of the universe limited? Hubble observes space mainly in the ultraviolet wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. This is the main portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that the human eye can observe as well. This is what we call visible light. And it's important to understand this a little bit more thoroughly before we continue, and you'll see what I mean as we go along. But I'm quoting here from a NASA website. This is an article called Tour of the Electromagnetic Spectrum we will try to put this in the show notes for you. It says, quote, typically the human eye can detect wavelengths from 380 to 700 nanometers. All electromagnetic radiation is light, but we can only see a small portion of this radiation, the portion we call visible light. Cone-shaped cells in our eyes act as receivers tuned to the wavelengths in this narrow band of the spectrum. Other portions of the spectrum have wavelengths too large or too small and energetic for the biological limitations of our perception. As the full spectrum of visible light travels through a prism, the wavelengths separate into the colors of the rainbow because each color is a different wavelength. Violet has the shortest wavelength at around 380 nanometers, and red has the longest wavelength at around 700 nanometers. end quote." So I want you to keep in mind what I said there about red, red having the longest wavelength. But it's good just to understand visible light overall. Now, the limitations we have with our eyesight are essentially the same limitations that Hubble faces. But it's not only the constitution of the light itself and our anatomy, the anatomy of the eye, that factor into this equation, but also that the universe is not static. Recent discoveries have proven that the universe is expanding. This is, in a lot of ways, common knowledge now. It was about 100 years ago in the 1920s when Edwin Hubble, the namesake of the Hubble Space Telescope, He observed these details by measuring the wavelengths of light coming from other galaxies, and he showed that distant objects were drifting away from our own galaxy. So his research proved that. His conclusion was that the universe is expanding in all directions. So the universe is dynamic. The universe is expanding. There's constant movement. This understanding has many implications, But consider what it does to our vision alone, just what we see. As the universe expands, the light itself traveling through the universe also expands. It gets stretched, and science shows this. What started out as visible light, or ultraviolet light, is changed. It's stretched into another wavelength at the end of the spectrum, infrared light. So it goes from a shorter wavelength to a longer wavelength. It's stretched. You'll remember that red was a longer wavelength when I read you that quote from NASA. So in that same way, the light is stretched and it becomes a longer wavelength. It's stretched into another wavelength at the end of the electromagnetic spectrum, infrared light. And this process is sometimes referred to as light being red shifted. The problem is that the light is being shifted out of the view of Hubble. So Hubble has not been able to find the light from the most distant galaxies and stars. We'll try to provide in the show notes some information and material that covers a little bit of detail about the electromagnetic spectrum. So you can see some of the charts that show the gamma rays and the X-rays and UV rays, and then there's a tiny band of visible light kind of in the middle of the spectrum as we categorize it. And then as you move on further and further to the right side, you do pass through the near-infrared and the mid-infrared and so on. So the light is getting stretched. And again, Hubble's view is limited. To see beyond Hubble, it was clear that JWST would have to be a dedicated infrared telescope. That infrared light is the light that's further away. It's more distant. Now, NASA already has a few crafts dedicated to infrared astronomy, including the Spitzer Space Telescope, which was retired in 2020. So what's the difference with JWST? Is just one more infrared spacecraft? Well, not really. Spitzer's images were not high enough resolution to have the same effect as Hubble's images. Its mirror was too small. The mirror is what collects light. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. So now we know why Hubble's view of the universe was limited. And next we'll talk about why JWST must operate from space. Why it's not going to be a telescope here on the earth. Just like Hubble, it will operate from space. But before we discuss that, think about the relationship between time and distance and our vision. You see, what these scientists are creating truly is a time machine. The senior project scientist for the JWST, John Mather, he said, a telescope is a time machine. A telescope is always a time machine because your eye is a time machine. And then he proceeded to give a few examples of this. He talked about the speed of light itself. We see things as they were when that source of light sent light to us. So for example, it takes about two and a half seconds for light to travel from here to the moon and back. It takes about 500 seconds for the light of the sun to reach our eyes. That's about eight minutes. We see the sun as it was 500 seconds ago because that light is traveling at 186,000 miles per second. And about as far as the eye can see away without a telescope is the Andromeda Nebula. Now we see that as it was about 3 million years ago. You can just faintly see that with the naked eye in the right conditions. So again, what these scientists are creating truly is a time machine in many ways. And that will come up again as we go further along here, that relationship between time and distance and our vision. Now, many telescopes have been designed to operate from space and there's a good reason why. I heard one observer who explained that the basic reason lies in the children's song, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. When a telescope sits under the shroud of the Earth's environment, when it operates here from Earth, there is a measure of obstruction of the view. It's distorted, even if just slightly. So telescopes are sent into outer space to observe while in orbit up in space. But for the JWST, there's also an additional reason to send it into outer space. And that's because it's an infrared telescope. The sensitive instruments on the JWST this infrared telescope will sense the heat and it will alter the data collected. So we do sense infrared light, even though we can't see it with our naked eye and we sense it as heat. And it does pick up on the infrared telescope on the primary mirror, it will pick it up and also other instruments on the telescope would pick it up. So in order to avoid detecting that heat signature, that infrared light, The telescope needs to be extremely cold, or it will just measure itself, the heat from all the electronics. So, we don't want to blind ourselves. You you hear the scientists saying that a lot. We don't want to blind ourselves. That's why they're sending it into space. And also, the sun itself can affect the temperature of the telescope. So, it's not desirable for the JWST to see any of the sun. So, it has to be placed in the coldest darkest setting possible thus it's been planned to be far from the earth not influenced by the heat from earth or the sun as much as possible in order to see beyond the jwst has to be launched into space and before we go on let me just talk about the main elements of the telescope so that hopefully you can have a visual picture in your mind But again, we'll put in the show notes some links to websites where you can see, uh, mainly the NASA website, where you can see the telescope itself and get a picture of what it would look like there in outer space. But the James Webb Space Telescope is comprised of three main sections. The first is behind the large mirror. The mirror will be the most iconic part of the telescope, the part that people think of when they visualize it or see it the main focal point. So just behind that large primary mirror is the integrated science instrument module. So there's science instruments that measure all the data right behind that primary mirror. That's the first element. The second element is the optical telescope element itself. And that includes the mirrors and the structure that holds up the mirrors. So that's the second element, the mirror itself and the structure holding it up. And the third element, is the spacecraft, which includes the spacecraft bus and the sun shield. The sun shield is a very important part of the telescope, and the bus is as well. I heard it reported that the bus, the spacecraft bus, includes something like $1 billion worth of hardware alone, just that one. It's a relatively small part of the telescope compared to the rest. Okay, now moving forward, why? Why does JWST need to have a mirror that's so large many telescopes have been designed to have large light collecting surfaces large mirrors as an example the south african large telescope it's the largest single optical telescope in the southern hemisphere its primary mirror is approximately 36 feet across that's just absolutely huge now as i said before hubble reached a limit of what it could see it could not see the light furthest away because the light's been red shifted out of its view. Telescopes keep getting bigger because the bigger they are, the more light they can collect and the better the resolution. Scott Willoughby, the vice president and the JWST program manager of Northrop Grumman Aerospace Systems, he gave an analogy and I just want to share the analogy he used, just paraphrasing him. He said that collecting light is about having a wider set of optics. So if it's going to rain about a half inch, it doesn't pay to have a tall bucket, just a wider bucket. The wider your bucket is, the more raindrops you will collect. And so in the same way, the JWST is collecting photons. So collecting those things that make up light basically in the same manner that you would collect raindrops with a bucket. And that's why JWST's mirrors are so large. The larger the mirror's diameter, the better that we can see and discover. So here's some facts about the mirror. And again, when you look it up online, this is the most iconic part of the telescope. It has a massive tennis court-sized mirror. It includes 18 hexagonal primary optic mirror segments making up an approximately 21.3 feet complete primary mirror. And it really is dazzling when you see it. Probably the main reason it's so dazzling is because it's coated with a thin coat of gold. So more on that here in a minute. But each of those mirror segments is made out of beryllium. Now this is a material that's very strong and lightweight. Working with it is difficult, but... It's used because it doesn't change shape very much at cryogenic temperatures. Those are the temperatures in which JWST will be going. So it's very stable thermally at low temperatures. To give you an idea of how difficult it is working with beryllium, it took nine machines, a total of eight years, working simultaneously to build these 18 mirrors, to finalize them, to get them into their final form. So that was what was necessary to get that incredible precision required for the optic mirror with beryllium. Now, as I said, it's coated with a super thin layer of gold. Gold is not used just because it looks wonderful and it looks dazzling, but the gold is used because it actually has maximum reflectivity in infrared light. Gold was also used on the Spitzer Space Telescope before but it's just much more visible on the James Webb Space Telescope because this telescope doesn't have the mirror inside of a tube or a shroud. It's open. Now this gold was polished to a speck of better than 20 nanometers surface accuracy. So you're basically working on the atomic level there. And this mirror and other elements make JWST about 100 times more powerful than Hubble. To achieve the grand goals of this telescope it had to be grand itself the mirror had to be very large in order to collect a great deal of light now the problem that this large mirror introduces is propelling a telescope of such size into space just to relate it to another telescope the gemini south telescope in chile is about 300 metric tons of steel, and its primary mirror is about eight meters in diameter. So rather than 300 tons, engineers designed JWST to still pack a punch, but it's merely six tons. So the weight was reduced dramatically, but it's still too large to be launched by a rocket. The primary mirror is larger than what the transportation storage space inside the rocket would be. So this presents quite the problem. What was the answer to this problem? Origami. The telescope will launch in a folded position. This is going to be the largest ever telescope sent into space. And that's because just like origami, this telescope folds to fit into a rocket that's approximately 18 feet wide. So it folds up, fitting inside of this Arion rocket, and that's how they're going to manage to get it into space. But as you've seen throughout, this mission will be incredibly difficult. The launch itself presents many challenges of its own. Just briefly, for example, Air has to come out of all the sun shields in precisely the right way upon launch. The actual spacecraft has to rotate in just the right way so it's not too hot because the sun is bearing down on all the delicate equipment. And then with the trajectory of the JWST, as it leaves the atmosphere, it has to precisely rotate to hit just the right place beyond the moon or the telescope will run out of fuel and the spacecraft will not make it it won't have enough life to run its course. There are also about 300 to 400 different operations that have to occur to bring it into its operational state. I could go on and describe more, but there's just so much that has to happen. Everything has to work perfectly the first time. So the launch itself presents many challenges of its own. And as I said, it has to operate from space in order to reach the great goals that scientists have for this telescope. Now when I mentioned that it would rest in space in orbit, I don't mean orbiting Earth. This JWST is going to operate from space, but rather than orbiting about 340 miles above Earth, as the Hubble Space Telescope does, this telescope will be sent much further. The furthest man has ever ventured from Earth in the history of mankind occurred when the crew of Apollo 13 skirted around the dark side of the moon on their return mission in the spring of 1970. And the moon is about 240,000 miles away. But Webb will be four times further, one million miles away. And its orbital resting place will be what's known as the Earth-Sun L2 point, or Lagrange 2 point. Not only is this the optimal location for uninhibited observation, but it's a position where the telescope would remain without being f- pulled further into space. Here's a good definition from NASA.gov. It reads, quote, Lagrange points are positions in space where objects sent there tend to stay put. At Lagrange points, the gravitational pull of two large masses, that's the sun and the earth. The gravitational pull of two large masses, precisely equals the centripetal force required for a small object to move with them. These points in space can be used by spacecraft to reduce fuel consumption needed to remain in position. End quote. So to orbit the so-called Earth-Sun L2 point would prevent the telescope from going in and out of the sun's shadow. It's going to keep it in the coldest, darkest place possible. But as you heard there in that quote, It does require fuel consumption to remain in position, but being at the L2 point will reduce dramatically the amount of fuel required. So that's one reason that this telescope actually has a lifespan, so to speak. It will only be fully operational and functional totally for probably about 10 years. This L2 point is essentially an orbit inside of an orbit. And since it's the darkest, coldest place that we could send it, it will avoid disrupting the telescope's infrared sensory instruments. But from the moment of launch, the scientists will never be able to reach it again. Now just for context, it was in May 2009 that Hubble was repaired or given maintenance for its fifth and final time. So five missions to repair or maintain Hubble, and this is not even possible with the JWST. It has to be perfect the first time. Tom Weiss, the president of Northrop Grumman, said, quote, there's nothing I can say that can come close to describing how technically difficult this telescope is. We are at the verge of impossible. Yes, JWST can only live up to its fullest potential one million miles away. But, What challenges are introduced by sending JWST to the L2 point? Well, one of the main challenges the JWST faces is that the telescope has to operate in extreme conditions, mainly cryogenic temperatures, super cold. And yet to achieve its goals, it needs to operate in those temperatures. So to give you an idea, the ambient temperatures surrounding JWST, about a million miles away, would be almost negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is incredible. In fact, the greatest stress on the telescope is not the launch. It's the cryogenic temperatures. Now it's going to, again, almost negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Physics change at those cryogenic temperatures. So to assist with operations in these cryogenic temperatures is a a really incredible invention that's been attached to the telescope, and it's a critical element. It's called the sun shield. As you take a look at the picture of the telescope, you'll notice the sun shield right away. It's the largest part of the telescope. It's a five layer sun shield, and each layer is a membrane thinner than a human hair. And when deployed, this sun shield allows the telescope to cool to the almost negative 400 degrees Temperatures, that's the ambient temperature, but without the sun shield, the telescope would never reach those low temperatures it needs to operate and function properly and receive undistorted infrared images. It would never reach those temperatures because the sun would hit it and that would heat it up. Those negative 400 degree temperatures are cold enough to liquefy air. So you've probably seen the vacuum insulated flasks Of liquid nitrogen maybe when you visit a science center that's similar now as cold as it is on the one side of the telescope simultaneously the layer closest to the Sun is going to be almost 190 degrees Fahrenheit above zero and that's nearly the boiling point of water So the temperature approximately 15 feet away on opposite sides of the sun shield will be a difference of 600 degrees. Truly fire and ice, it's been labeled. These are pretty remarkable inventions to help this JWST telescope do what it needs to do. So what should we expect to see, to actually see when the telescope goes up? Well, this infrared telescope will peer through so much of the dust that's visible in the ultraviolet images we've already seen from Hubble. In fact, when you go online, you can see many of these images side by side. Perhaps some of the images taken with the Spitzer, which also was an infrared telescope, put side by side with Hubble's images, and what you'll notice from the infrared images is that the dust from nebula, from other elements in the universe, pretty much is dissolved in the infrared images. It peers straight through all of that dust. So it does free us to see so much more, but even more, if successful, it would be able to see further away. And as I mentioned before, that is further back in time. The farther away we see the further back in time we see. And the telescope is coming soon, perhaps. It's been delayed several times, and surely it could be delayed again. But the expected launch date, just to whet your appetite, is October 31st, 2021. So later this year. The launch is imminent, but it's it's just also very exciting. Astrophysicist Matt Mountain said... But the real excitement with the James Webb will be the things that we didn't anticipate. Whenever you go into the unknown, you discover things you didn't expect. And those, of course, are going to be the most interesting of all. So to illustrate his statement there, there were new discoveries that the Hubble Space Telescope made. Scientists learned about dark energy. They learned about the expansion of the universe. And no doubt, the same thing is going to happen if... The JWST is successful. However, if it succeeds, it will have the ability to see beyond Hubble, beyond anything mankind has ever seen. Now, I want to show you that there's a strong connection between the Philadelphia Church of God, which produces KPCG and this program and all the others. There's a strong connection between the PCG and Hubble. It was just about four months after the PCG began declaring its message that the Hubble Space Telescope launched. Mr. Gerald Flurry said in a program that he believed God had a hand in blessing the Hubble Space Telescope. And in fact, he said so much about Hubble. There have been many articles over the years. It seems that his imagination was set on fire. Mr. Gerald Flurry, the editor-in-chief of the Trumpet Magazine and our pastor general here in the Philadelphia Church of God, His imagination was set on fire by this. Now consider that the James Webb Space Telescope is NASA's successor to Hubble, essentially. This telescope is going to see farther than ever before, and if it succeeds, it will have been far more difficult, on the verge of impossible, we heard. Its accomplishments and images will no doubt be more grand. So what are the implications for this project? This mission should excite us. Let's just say that the JWST did succeed. What would we actually see when the first images return? Stretch your minds. Think about that. In Psalm 19, the scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. Does God want us to see his creation? and thereby better understand his power? Well, that's certainly what's already happened with the Hubble Space Telescope. What if this one is successful as well? Just imagine how much further we'll be able to see, how much more beautiful and awesome the images that will return to us. The JWST is just a tiny mishap away from complete failure. If it succeeds, that might be a good indicator that perhaps God did have a hand in this mission too. Whatever new vistas may be unveiled in space, whatever unexpected discoveries, whatever seen in the depths of the vast unknown, it is actually linked together with our own destiny. Now I realize that even if we could travel the speed of light itself, it would not be fast enough to to go out there into space. 186,000 miles per second is the speed of light, and that's not nearly fast enough to reach as far as we can see, even with the Hubble. It doesn't come close to fast enough to visit these places we would witness with the JWST. Still, nevertheless, that universe is linked to us and our potential. In the May-June 2021 Philadelphia Trumpet, Mr. Gerald Fleury wrote, Here is a most exciting truth revealed in your Bible. The condition of these planets is closely linked with your incredible human potential. End quote. He was discussing the recent Perseverance rover sent to Mars, and he continued saying that as impressive and inspiring as it was, this quote, Biblical truth makes it a million times more so. End quote: He was talking about these verses in Romans chapter eight. Notice starting in verse 18. It says, "I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. I read those verses from the RSV. Mr. Fleury quoted it in that rendition. It's very poetic, but what he went on to say in that article is that essentially God created mankind with the destiny to remove that decay and that futility from Mars and the universe. He talked about the direct connection that we have to the universe. And then I'll just quote from his article again. It says, Why would the creation wait for the sons of God, here referring to human beings, to be glorified? End quote. And he went on to read verse 21 from the RSV, which reads, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children, or sons, of God. End quote. Mr. Fleury talked about how the earth and the universe have to be set free from its bondage to decay. And that's what we see when we look out into this universe. We see decay. We see bondage. We see a universe that needs to be set at liberty. And we see, if we read these scriptures, human beings, mankind, that God created to cause the universe to flourish. You can go on and read other parts of the Bible that discuss that God does have a reason for the universe. Why did he create it? Even Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, talks about how God created the universe to be inhabited. He formed it to be inhabited. He's going to even plant the heavens, Isaiah chapter 51 says. Yes, our destiny is to go out into the universe. Our destiny is to make it flourish. Another quote from that same article reads, In this convulsing world, we need our universe dream. We need to see the stupendous possibility in the eternal majesty God is offering human beings. Nothing can stimulate our imagination like comprehending our universe potential. End quote. So we see that this project should light our imaginations on fire. It should motivate us to search out these truths in God's word more deeply. When we see JWST, we realize we must see beyond Hubble, beyond this earth, to a vast, ever-expanding universe, an immense inheritance just waiting for us. And yes, the most exciting part is that the launch of JWST is an opportunity for God's church. It's an opportunity for us to disclose the meaning. It's an opportunity for us to be stirred with wonder, an opportunity to bring to this dark world more of God's understanding and light. If you don't have a copy of Incredible Human Potential, this is an ultra-inspiring book that can help you delve into the potential we all share. And I would just add to that, there's another book called Our Awesome Universe Potential and we will send these pieces of literature out absolutely free with no obligation or follow-up. So please do check out the show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud for a link to all of our literature, or you can just go to thetrumpet.com and look on the literature tab there. Don't forget to email your questions and comments to tsar at kpcg.fm. And we'll leave you today with a short quote that you can find in that book previously mentioned, Our Awesome Universe Potential. This is an excerpted portion from Mr. Gerald Flurry, and it reads, The universe becomes much more impressive to behold when you realize that God put it there in order for his sons to rule over it. God's supreme creation isn't the universe, but his masterpiece of recreating himself in man.